On today's pod, Aswa returns with Dr. Ann Johnson to talk about her background in chemistry and biology, as well as her feelings about teaching during online school. So please lean in and enjoy this conversation with Aswa and Dr. Johnson. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the pod. My name is Aswa, and today I'm very excited to introduce my guest, Dr. Ann Johnson. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. So for our listeners tuning in, uh, I want to start off with a little bit of an introduction. So can you please tell me about your role at Ryerson? Uh, my current role is that I am the academic coordinator for first year science. So that means that I give a lot of academic advising to our current crop of first year science students, which is all of these science programs except for computer science. And mm -hmm. before that, I was I spent some time as the chemistry program director. And I spent some time before that as an academic coordinator for uh, the Chang School Chemistry and Biology courses. And mm -hmm. I I've had a number of different roles on various different committees at the university. And all along, I've been a professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biology. And so I've been at Ryerson for, I have to think about this. Um, it must be 19 years now. So it's, uh, wow. it feels, yeah, it feels like it's, it's been a while. Um, you know, every institution is a little bit different and it takes a little while to figure out how the things work because they're all pretty bureaucratic. So you just have to learn mm -hmm. how they work and how to work within that bureaucracy to get what you want done in the least painful way. So I feel like I've been at Ryerson long enough that I'm probably beginning to forget more things than <laughs> I'm going to learn. <laughs> and so that's what you're currently doing at Ryerson. But that's before right. that, your journey before Ryerson, what was so, what was hometown for you? Um, oh, well, we moved around a lot. So I've lived in a variety of different places, a variety of different countries. Um, I went to high school in London, Ontario. And mm -hmm. then I went to U University of Toronto to do an undergrad. I thought I was going to do a degree in microbiology. Then I, well, first year was a bit of a trial. I went to a pretty academic high school in London, and we at that point we had grade 13. So grade 13 was kind of like halfway between high school and halfway between university in terms of our expectate, the expectations on us. And so I ha think I had pretty good training for what to do at university and how to study sort of independently. But I had no idea how to take notes and know exactly what I should be doing and studying. And I spent so much time in first year write, rewriting my notes because I couldn't read them. And then I had no time for real studying. I spent a lot of time, I think, reading the textbook and that was pretty much it. That sounds pretty, probably like most students these days. Yeah. That was, it was frustrating because it wasn't really working and I wasn't getting the grades I wanted. So I went, I sort of thought about how I was taught to write. And because I lived in a variety of different places, I ended up changing my writing um, 
to a style that I learned when I young lived in New Zealand for a while. So I, I went back to that type of writing and instead of using a ballpoint pen, I got pens with runny ink so I could write quickly and neatly and I didn't have to rewrite anything. I could just read it right off. And I started instead of trying to write everything verbatim that the profs were saying, I just tried to condense what they were saying into my own words and sort of to get the essence of the meaning as opposed to every single mm -hmm. word that they said. And I think that looking back now and knowing what I know about learning psychology, I think it was really that fact that I was trying to write down the essence of the, or the meaning of what they were saying as opposed to every single word. So I guess as students, we need to learn how to get that essence and not try to be stenographers. Um, and so that really helped and I had started getting better grades. I found the program I, or first year was, um, it was interesting. I really disliked biology in first year at U of T. It was- uh, No way. I, yeah, when I went, it was, the lectures were, that we all had to do, they were taped. So we had to go to labs to listen to tape things and occasionally there were activities that they had that we had to do that were kind of in on these little uh trays and i can't say that i learned a lot except that it was a lot of memorization and mm -hmm. memorization is not my favorite thing to do i could do it it's just i don't enjoy it and mm -hmm. so i thought well <clears throat> because i've had some summer jobs working in um some cancer labs and the people I was working with were microbiologists. So I had a pretty good idea, at least what my way around a lab. And I thought, well, I'll just keep on with this because, you know, I looked past this one course, sort of, you know, what I had been doing and what these people were doing in the lab. Okay, they were all microbiologists. So I thought, oh, I still want to be a microbiologist. So I applied for the microbiology program. I got in because at that time we applied for some of the programs after our first or in our first year and micro was one of them and mm -hmm. then first or so second year was was pretty good but microbiology was torture it was all <laughs> memorization it felt like I was trying to memorize a stamp collection and the only part of mm -hmm. micro I actually liked was metabolism which is kind of funny since that's what I'm teaching these days <laughs> um and I loved organic chemistry. Like I just got the logic. It just made sense to me. It was not hard. It was just, it just came really naturally. Um, at least the, all the mechanisms and things like that. And I think a lot of that's because my dad, my dad used to be an organic chemist. And he, before I took organic chemistry, he gave me some really simple advice, which was to pay attention to the electrons and how they move and why they move. And mm -hmm. that's really, for me, was the key to understanding organic chemistry. And it, I try to get that message across to students when I do teach organic chemistry, but I think it, maybe people just need to learn things the hard way. <laughs> um, so we can give advice and people mm -hmm. don't necessarily take it. Um, so that was, because I wasn't really liking micro and I really liked, I still wanted to stay in something biology related because I really, really, really didn't want to take another year of calculus. 
And um, so I liked, I loved calculus in high school. I thought it was fun. In first year, I didn't like calculus. And I think a lot of that's because I couldn't understand the prof. And I don't think he understood calculus either. And he spent most of the time trying to copy examples out of our textbook and he couldn't even mm -hmm. copy them right. So I can't say I actually learned anything in first year calculus. The whole idea of trying to go through that and trying to teach, guess what was going to be on the test and trying to teach myself what I didn't know was uh, I just couldn't see myself doing that. So I decided mm -hmm. to try biochemistry and that was at the time started in third year and we had to have really good GPAs to get in. I think like a three, like a B, B plus average. So mm -hmm. I applied, I got in, I felt really lucky. Um, it was a really small group of us. I think there were maybe 50 students in the program at the time. It was, you know, I found all the way through a lot of the profs, they really challenged us to think. I think that's really colored my view of what is a university education like why do you guys come why should you guys get degrees and really it's about learning to think and learning to express yourself clearly all the rest of it is just you know it's just the different flavors of how you do that so i think that that those sort of fundamental ideas really color how i try to teach and whether i'm successful or not maybe depends on the medium and the course mm -hmm. and the students involved. And um, so I graduated with a degree in biochemistry um, with honors. I had to look back and see that. It was a specialist program in biochemistry. And then I went to UBC to do a degree in chemistry. And so I was uh, working in a lab with uh, my supervisor Martin Tanner he's still there and mm -hmm. he had we were doing enzyme kinetics a lot of enzyme kinetics a little bit of synthesis mostly to synthesize inhibitors and alternate substrates and things like that so the synthesis part was um, a means to an end as opposed to being all about synthesis and so I worked on the mechanism of an enzyme and I managed to we managed to scoop a big name, which was kind of exciting. And like a couple months later, they published their work. They used entirely different methods and came up with the same result we did, which is really, really conf confirming that we've done the right thing and you know our approach was good. Um, That's so for cool. that, I, yeah, it was it was it was real, felt really good, and it was because we'd use this a little bit of a comp. They'd use really uh, a lot of synthetic organic chemistry techniques and we had used um, mm -hmm. combinations of molecular genetics because I made a whole bunch of mutants and then I was measuring metal contents and rates and reactions and I had some alternate um, actually they weren't substrates they were some of the intermediates and we were able to show that we could make products and uh, the, sub the products of the substrate from those so it was yeah we used a very very different approach um, which is kind of fun. Um, so yeah, a bit of molecular biology, bit of chemistry, you know, kind of all in all in one project. And then I and I worked quite closely at times with some people in um, the biochemistry department at U of T, and also downstairs um, the people at Steve Withers' lab, and he's a big name in entomology 
in Canada, um, particularly with sugar enzymes, so carbohydrate mm -hmm. um, enzymes. And uh, so then I went to do a postdoc at the University of Baltimore, sorry, University of Maryland in um, College Park. So it's just outside of DC. We lived uh, just outside of Baltimore at the time. So I got my taste of commuting and decided I hated commuting, um, <laughs> at least driving. I don't mind sitting in a, on a bus or subway anywhere near as much as driving and start and stop traffic for an hour each way. Um, and so I, I was working there in a lab. We were doing a lot of uh, DNA work, um, no enzymes in sight. Uh, lots of radioactivity, lots and lots of radioactivity, um, which is okay. You know, I, I tried to do that sort of thing. And we were basically looking at degradation of short oligonucleotides caused by some chemical compounds. And so that was all interesting. And, you know, I all along i was kind of trying to find something that i liked doing in the lab and nothing mm -hmm. really sparked my interest but I, all along i love teaching i and i've loved teaching ever since i was a child so i i think that i was really looking for something where i could teach people who wanted to learn mm -hmm. and so then i i my postdoc was it was not a traditional postdoc. It was, they called it a faculty intern. So I was doing kind of research part-time and teaching part-time. And that was how I got paid. And so then after that, we, my husband got a job. We moved to Toronto. He got a job at York. And I was, um, I helped him set up his lab. So I, I, was working on trained some of his initial grad students and things like that and mm -hmm. I then I had a, my son so that's my first child and he wasn't too old he's maybe three or four months old and so I was at home stay-at-home mom at the time and I wasn't too worried about that and one day one of his my husband's colleagues came over with an ad for the, a job at Ryerson. And he, he said, well, you should apply. So I did, and I got an interview and now I'm here 19 years later. So that's pretty much the story of how I got to where I am now in, in a short yeah. way. I love how you came full circle. Like I can see that, um, you know, from a young age that you were interested in teaching. And then you had your father was an organic chemist, which influenced your interest in organic chemistry. But yeah, you kind of did a little bit of everything before. You, oh you yeah, know, come here. Yeah, well, I I think you know, in amongst the faculty, I'm probably a little bit unique because I, as a chemist, I understand most of the biology, mm -hmm. and as a biologist, I understand most of the chemistry that my chemistry colleagues talk about. So it's, a, it's an interesting place to be in, you know, to understand both worlds. Yeah, kind of like in the middle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's actually for people who are interested and who have, can understand both, there's, you can do a lot of really interesting work 
Um, and it, it's easier to collaborate with people in either field because you can speak the same language. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, it's actually really quite helpful. It's maybe not so useful in terms of getting a job. You know, when I was a grad student, a lot, a lot of people are interested in getting jobs in pharmaceutical companies, you know, with drug development and discovery. But very often they're looking for people who are a whole lot more specialized than mm -hmm. we were. So they thought that we were, too, they, they told us to our faces actually that we were actually too general. We knew too many or could do too many different things. They prefer people who are more specialized. specialized. But yeah. I don't know, I don't know that that's necessarily true in smaller companies like startups and the like but at the time with the big places like Merck Frost was outside of Montreal at the time and they they were mm -hmm. would have been a big employer of people like us and they they just would prefer to have people who are either just you know biologists biochemists um, synthetic organic chemists and but not people who kind of knew all kinds of different things so Right. It's, yeah, it's different. But you know, a lot of biology pro problems, like the ones that are people are really working on the molecular biology, ultimately, it's all chemistry. And so you need to be able to understand chemistry, and the chemical tools that are available to understand right. how some of those systems work. So yeah, there's, there's lots of different things. So if anyone's interested in working in the area of molecular, or sorry, bio, uh, biological chemistry, there's definitely lots of things that you can do with that. And so did you always know that uh, you wanted to go to grad school or was that an interest that peaked maybe in undergrad? I don't think I had a choice. Um, I grew up hearing, well, when you get your PhD, so, you know, from, you know, as long as I can mm -hmm. remember, so I don't really think I had a choice. I didn't really have a choice about whether I went into science or something else. It was science. It didn't matter what science it was, as long as it was science. And as long as I went and got my PhD, my parents were going to be happy. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure that that's really the right approach to raising kids. Um, it certainly backfired when it came to my sister. I think it's more important to help kids realize their potential follow their own interests as opposed to putting those sorts of pressures on them mm -hmm. to fit into a particular mold right and i would i would like to bring up here um you've mentioned previously that you've struggled with perfectionism um to some extent i i do and you know you get this idea of what you want something to look like in the end and sometimes, you know, it seems all bright and shiny and wonderful, but you don't know how to start. And it's sometimes that's where it's really helpful to work with other people and to say, look, I have this idea. Here's my idea. Um, right. Are you interested? Is there any way we could get started? But it's, you know, everything takes time. So it depends on how much, you know, how much of a priority this big thing that you want to do is whether you get started or not. But I do think it's important to break things down. And at some point you have to realize when is it good enough? So perhaps there's a deadline and you need to, when you're working on these things, you have to say, well, this is the, ideally what I'd like it to be. 
but what's good enough for maybe in a first incarnation or maybe to hit the submit button and mm -hmm. to say, you know, I've done my best considering what I have available, time, resources, energy, focus, et cetera, to do mm -hmm. this right now. So that's what's really helped me. My daughter actually suffered, she really um, struggled with perfectionism mm -hmm. a lot more than I ever did, um, particularly in elementary and middle school. And there's so many things she'd either not start them or she'd get part way and never finish them because it wasn't going yeah. to be perfect. And so I really, I it is a real struggle for a lot of people. And I know some people become really paralyzed by this struggle of perfectionism. Um, I studied classical music since I was about three. And that, that's one of those areas where, you know, if you're going to do a performance, even if it's just for a group of friends, you kind of want it to be perfect. But at the same time, we're, it's, it's almost more about the journey of getting there than yeah. the final thing. And I, keeping that in mind that it's really just part of a journey. And what I, I think the how I'd relate this to science and to undergrads is that all the tests and evaluations that we give you, they feel like they're the final thing and you have to be perfect mm -hmm. for them. But really, they're just a snapshot of what you're like at a particular time. And it's probably, you know, some days we have good days and other days are good, you know, bad days and everything in between. And, you know, like candid photos, you might not be looking your best. Um, mm -hmm. So, or maybe you're portraying some fantastic, wonderful life like people seem to portray on Instagram that's, you know, far from reality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's really hard to sort of say, okay, well, this is just really what it's like what is good enough you don't need to be the best you just need mm -hmm. to be good enough and it's like you sort of come back to that idea you know what what's the do you call the doctor who graduated at the bottom of the class well there's still oh, a doctor right <laughs> you know and yeah. ultimately like right now i know for a lot of undergrads they're so so focused on grades and they're focused a lot it's really hard or seems to be really hard oftentimes for them to mm -hmm. tease out, you know, what is important? Well, if you have an assignment that's worth one or 2%, I would argue it's nowhere near as important as the assignment that's worth 20%. I agree. But I see, I see a lot of students putting all kinds of time and effort into this little assignment that's not worth a whole lot, and they get really upset mm -hmm. about how they did, and then, but they don't put a correspondingly more time into this big assignment. They put the same amount of time in and then they don't do so well on a big assignment. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's all about sort of looking at weightings and prioritizing what's more important than other things. And you know, if you, if you just run out of time, maybe to say, okay, well, I'm just not going to do this 1% assignment because well, it's just 1%. At the end of the day, once you graduate, for the most part, nobody really cares how you did on individual courses, how you did on mm -hmm. individual assignments. What they care about is, did you graduate? Do you have that degree or not? 
So when you think about it that way, that's very freeing because now you don't now you can start learning for the joy of learning. You know, for the sake of enjoying all mm -hmm. the little intricacies of how things work and stop focusing on the grade. And the funny thing about that approach is if you take it, the grades will look after themselves. You might end up with better grades because you're not focused on them. You're focused on learning for the sake of learning. That's true. I, I, I like how I you like said, how that said that because, that. you know, oh, for me, it, uh, in my undergrad experience, experience, we come in we come and, in you know, we all have, have like future plans, plans of graduate school. And, and you know, you need a seller GPA for that. And so it's hard to feel like you are more than your GPA because we have a system in place that rewards good test taking, not necessarily, uh, you know, good skills. For example, like a good test taker might not be a good, uh, sorry, there's a bit of an echo. Yeah, they're, they're not necessarily good with their hands or in the lab or with troubleshooting or those other skills that are really valuable in research. Uh, that's quite true. And I know a number of faculty who will, if they have a choice between students and they look more or less the same on paper, they'll take the one with the lower grade rather than the one with the higher GPA. And it's because there's the people with the high GPAs often don't have to struggle to learn so much. And a lot mm -hmm. of research is really about doing things again, about troubleshooting. There's, there's, there's always a bit of a struggle to find that new knowledge, to connect all the pieces. So they're looking more for that hunger, that desire to learn, the curiosity. And it's harder to see that often with the students with the squeaky clean A plus GPAs. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that's partly why I think it's really important to focus more on the journey and more on learning for the sake of learning, connecting all the dots and seeing how things fit together. But there's a lot in nature, which is, you know, science is really the study of nature. There's a lot to be completely odd about when we connect those dots and see how things fit together so beautifully. Yeah, I agree. I, that's partly why um, I was interested in biology. So the, yeah. the connections that you can make with the world around you, it just, everything just fits. It does, yeah, very much. And so you've expressed a, a huge interest in teaching. And so I want to ask, when back in seven months ago, such a long time ago, uh, when we went into the pandemic and everything shut down and there was talks about online learning, what were your initial thoughts and feelings? Um, I was actually really disappointed because I, I had a really rough start to the winter semester. I, I broke my back and I created a disc. So I was, I was in hospital for a week because I couldn't walk and I was just in too much pain. And so then I, I, I got home and I sort of learning to, I had to learn how to sit again and uh, walk and all of those things that we take for granted and so I was out for about a month I don't think I missed a month of teaching but 
it was enough that I, I sort of felt disconnected from my course and, and my students. Right. And so then I was only, had only really been teaching for roughly a month with my students. So Dr. Adler took over for me while I was out, which was really, really kind of him. And uh, so I, I only really saw my students for about a month and I, I didn't really feel that connected to them be, because I missed that first, you know, the early weeks with them. Mm-hmm. And then I was still sort of trying to come to grips with what I'm able to do and what I'm not able to do physically and sort of also get myself oriented in terms of the course material where I wanted to be. And I was actually in class the morning that Ryerson decided to go online. So I was an 8 to 10 a.m. class. And I remember I was coming, I came back, the office area where my office is located up in the deanery, it was really quiet. And I didn't really think too much of it because it was sort of a gray, gray March day and you know not too inspiring it's often pretty quiet there on Friday mornings and so then I went into my office didn't think too much of it was working away and at some point the dean poked his head in my office and said we're having a meeting you should be there and I said a meeting (laughs) what and that's kind of when I found out that we were because I hadn't got any email or other messages that we had closed or that we were closing. So that's mm-hmm. basically when I found out that we were going online. At first, I kind of, I think I just sort of panicked for half a day. Yeah. Uh, sleep does wonders. And I thought, well, if I have some resources, some tools and, you know, get some technical knowledge on how to do this, I could teach a course online. Why not? And I, I, I've taken a number of um, sort of interested professional courses online. So I had a, some idea what I thought might work and what I thought would not work too well for teaching online. And I'd, for years, I've wanted to create um, like little mini lectures, the about five to 10 minute long um, little lectures that or videos that students could use as resources um you know for whether maybe they miss class because they're sick or maybe there's some concept that they're struggling with they just want to see it over and over and over again Mm -hmm. hoping that they'll get it so i was uh i was interested in doing that anyway so i thought well since i want to do this and now they're telling us how we can do that um that's where i like to focus my energy and then I'll use that for as a basis for delivering the bulk of the material. So that's how I I pivoted in um, March and I was um, I basically changed how I was grading the course but not not too significantly in terms that I didn't give the students any new assignments because I didn't think that I needed to do that in order to really evaluate the real nuts and bolts of the course. I felt that I pretty much got the basic concepts already with the midterm we'd already had. 
and the essays that they needed to write. Um, <clears throat> so I kept those two things and I was available for my students that they wanted to chat. Um, some of them did, but I think a lot of them didn't for mm -hmm. whatever reason. Um, maybe it was just unfamiliarity with the technology. So that was uh, that was the the winter semester. I I'm still not all that happy with it, but I think it really has more to do with the way I felt so disconnected um, mm -hmm. from my students. So when it came to thinking about the um, biochemistry class, I actually wanted to teach this. I haven't taught the lecture part of this course for probably about five years and I miss it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, this would be really fun to teach with some case studies because there are a number and we could work on some group discussions using case mm -hmm. studies to help um, understand and learn the material. And usually students in a big classroom setting, they don't want anything to do with case studies, but research usually shows that if case studies are, are used for learning and teaching, that students usually learn more and they learn more in terms of how to apply the knowledge. So it's not, it's, it takes the focus away from memorize and regurgitate um, onto more of that integrate what you've learned to new settings, which is really what we want you to do with your degree and all of the course material that you learn anyway. So that was sort of how I thought I wanted to teach the course. And then it was just a matter of, okay, well, if I do it like that, what resources can I get my hands on? What do I already have? And how am I going to do the evaluation? And I think I don't particularly like doing evaluations. I don't know any professor who does. Um, unfortunately, they're a bit of a thorn in our sides. We have to give you guys grades and they need to be somewhat realistic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, under the best of times, they should be more or less realistic. Um, and so they, that's something we need to take into consideration for how we are going to evaluate you. I think, yeah. I, I know you wanted to talk about future. I can see us easing back on all of the restrictions. I think that there's a big desire from faculty. Like we miss seeing you. So part of it would be coming to, you know, having classroom settings where people could come in for some of the activities. I know definitely labs. It'd be really, really, really good to see you guys back in the labs because you learn a lot of hands-on skills in the lab. You can learn a lot of that similar types of fine motor skills and measurement skills, doing various activities that have nothing at all to do with science at home. But there's something to do with putting it all together in a lab setting that seems to freak some students out, but it also brings out the best in the other students who maybe don't show it so well in the, um, the test taking part. And mm -hmm. so it, that, it would be good to see students back in the lab, but I think also it'd be really nice to 
see that we can have midterms and final exams on campus, even if the teaching part is still remote. So I think that would be a nice way to ease back into having um, maybe a little bit of restrictions, but and not really having huge mass gatherings. Um, I don't know if we'll do that at all. Um, it's kind of, I guess, a desire, not just for <laughs> me, but I think a lot of people would like to see some of that in between that we're not getting right now. And then eventually, I think we will go back to having our big classes and labs and things like we normally do. But I'm wondering what we're going to take away from what we're doing now. Like, what, we, what will we keep? And for me, I think I will be keeping my little uh, my little video lecture things because I think they're a really good tool for students. I, as I mentioned, I wanted to do that anyway. Um, I might sort of force the use of cases case studies more in a big class setting, even though the classroom might get too noisy for people to um, hear and mm -hmm. a lot of our Ryerson classrooms are not set up for group discussions for if you have a big class. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I think that they're just too important not to do. And I think that you guys are probably learning a whole lot more than you think that you are. And with less uh, fuss. And um, in some ways, I, I feel a little bit guilty. I feel like I've tricked you guys into learning things but and made it fun at the same time. Does that sort of address the future? Yeah, it's so it's so interesting that you say that because I was about to ask you, you know, we really moved away from some like traditional, you know, methods of testing for some courses and some traditional, you know, teaching methods. Well, I was going to ask, like, how do you feel that this is going to impact learning in the future? Like, are we going to hold on to these things? Well, you know, I I thought about all of this when I was thinking about how I would teach online. And I I know some of my colleagues, you know, at Ryerson and elsewhere, they really wanted to make an environment that was as close to their usual classroom in-person setting as possible. And I thought, well, I want to make the best use of the tools that I have for teaching online. I don't need it to look like a traditional in-person classroom so i thought why not try something different and see how it works and see how i like doing different things um i for the case study and i've used case studies in my the pharmaceutical chemistry course that i teach mm -hmm. i usually walk around and see how the different groups are doing i don't get to do that so much with it online, I'm very much blind as to what's going on in the groups. Um, I do think that you are learning more. And I, I imagine it'd be a whole lot more fun because you have something applied, interesting to think about. And you have some accountability because you have your peers to talk about. And you, I know you guys don't want to look silly in front of each other, but you're also there to help each other understand things and have different perspectives. So I 
ultimately, I wasn't so concerned about, and this, I guess it all comes back to my teaching philosophy. I wasn't so concerned about, can you guys memorize a whole bunch of stuff and regurgitate it? So what do I really want to know? I want to know, can you take the ideas and the concepts and apply them to something else? And so that's really what I wanted to test. Ideally, that's what we would be testing in our regular in-person classes. But unfortunately, in some programs like biology, the classes are really so big now, it's very difficult to do that. Oh, so, so you have yeah. to do it sizes. Yeah, yeah. So I think that, you know, if the class sizes for a lot of the biology and biomed courses were a lot smaller, you'd probably see a lot less sort of memorize and regurgitate types of evaluations and more testing or evaluations that investigate how much have you learned? How well can you apply it? Can you troubleshoot oh, yeah. something? Those exactly. are really the, and those are really the skills that we want you to take away. All of the stuff that we ask you to memorize and regurgitate, you probably forget that the day after you've, uh, <laughs> you've written it because now you're worried about memorizing for the next test. Mm -hmm. And you know, in, a, in the real world, you will learn what you need to learn because, or need to know because you need to know it and you'll, the stuff that you sort of memorize, well, it's because you use it all the time. Mm -hmm. And the other stuff, well, do you know where to look it up and evaluate whether those sources are any good? That's really what's important. That's true. And it's it's what I love about the case studies that we've been doing is they have like a clinical aspect to them, which I don't know, it really gets me excited. Um, <laughs> finding out like who, why did that patient, um, you know, why was that patient, sorry for a lack of a better word, why did that patient die? Um, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> that particular well, case study, yeah. Or why were they sick, yeah. Exactly, and it, it was it was sort of like um like a show, like a mystery. Yeah, yeah, it, they're, they're, um, I chose them because they were pretty engaging. So, mm -hmm. but I, which makes them fun. And it's so interesting that you wanted to do the the mini lecture series even before the pandemic, because I think it really works super well with asynchronous learning, having the short videos that you can just come back to, pick up, same topic, just a different subheading. I found that it's it's really helpful because I can easily, you know, start whenever I want to and, you know, finish. Well, that and that that was Part of it was to make them short because I, you know, if you there's if you have a choice of watching something that's five minutes long or something that's thirty minutes long, and you're not sure if you have enough time, you're going mm -hmm. to go for that short thing. The half hour or one hour thing, you're going to put that off until yeah. <laughs> you either schedule it into your calendar or you. Uh, decide, yeah, I'm not interested, not going to bother. Mm -hmm. And in a way, like, I think there was a, there was a concern that students would, um, you know, put, put things off too much or procrastinate too much if they were, you know, left to deal with their own and manage their own time. And in a way, I think that really helps with that because if it's a short video, you know, 
you know, you can just easily watch it, watch it again if you have to multiple times. Well, but starting on those longer videos. That's right. is and you, you, can fit, you can fit these sorts of things in better into a busy schedule. So if you only mm -hmm. have 10 minutes, well, you might be able to watch maybe two five minute videos, depending on your internet connection. Or you could watch one multiple times, but the activation energy to decide to that you're going to watch your 20 or 30 minute video is a lot higher when you have only 10 minutes to spare. I love that activation energy. <laughs> That's perfect. And so just to wrap up, you know, for students, students that are learning in these in these times, you know, they've expressed a lot of concerns regarding uh, mental health, you know, missing out on that like for some students university was kind of like an escape from challenges at home and you know they're unable to access those same uh, study places and you know a lot of students as i as i've heard you already say that you you're missing out on that connection with students and students are also missing out on that connection with professors so is there what advice would you give to students who are learning in these times what should um, we start off with? All of your professors have office hours. I find mine are not particularly well used most of the time. It doesn't hurt to make an appointment just to chat or mm -hmm. check in or introduce yourself and tell me what you're interested in. Um, you know, make yourself a real person, not just a name and a box on Zoom. And uh, so that's part of it. Um, the students who are feeling isolated could benefit from making use of either things like Google Meet or Zoom to meet with other students or their mm -hmm. friends or even family in far places. Um, it's amazing that we have this technology that maybe we've never heard of before that can make us closer and more connected with people who are physically much further away mm -hmm. from other parts of the world. So that's something I think that we're going to have a difficult time letting go of after the pandemic is over. I think that a lot of families and people will be using these tools to connect with their friends um you know just for a group discussion hangout whatever so that's definitely one thing to do um i have no idea how i could advise a student who feels that they're in a abusive family situation you know if their parents are abusive to them we do have resources at the university to help people get to safe houses and things, but if the student's not feeling like that's what they need yet, so they're mm -hmm. kind of in that in-between area, it's difficult. And part of, you know, sometimes people you just can't talk with, but sometimes it really helps to have adult-type conversations with people and say, okay, these are the things I need. What do you need? And how can we make all of this work together as a family unit, you know, that we're all stuck here together. Um, I know sometimes people have difficulty with um, not having a quiet space. 
or there's lots mm -hmm. of distractions. So sometimes if you can turn your back to the distractions, um, until we learn how to grow eyes out of the backs of our heads, um, I think that that helps. Just, you know, if mm -hmm. you can't see it, you're less likely to be distracted. <clears throat> For the noise, <coughs> excuse me, some, I found noise canceling headphones work wonders. And then what you put on to listen to, I like to listen to some music with no words. Or sometimes just white noise helps, or mm -hmm. you know, sort of soothing, calming things that help you block out with all the chaos around you. I, I find sometimes right. those things help, and I imagine that they probably help in situations where people are in noisy family environments. And it mm -hmm. also, it's not anything to be ashamed of to say, you know, I have these things that my family needs me to do, and I have courses I need to take, and I need to work, and sort of think about your life as a whole, and mm -hmm. think about how all those pieces fit together, how much time you have, and say, well, in order to make all of this work, something has to go. Maybe I'm not going to take quite as many courses this semester just to make things fit together for me and my family. I think that's a very adult way to approach the situation. And I think that's a great note to leave leave off at. Some great advice that was given to us today by Dr. Ann Johnson. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Oh, you're I welcome. I certainly learned a lot. Oh, very good. And hopefully we can have you on the pod again sometime uh, in the future. And for those listening in, thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you on the next one.